This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 278. And the quote of the day is, no matter how big your house is, how recent your car is, or how big your bank account is, our graves will all be the same size. Stay humble. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well, and I hope you had a good weekend, and that's it, man. Everything is good on my end, and for those of you who may not know, I've mentioned it a couple times, but I'm actually moving, uh, moving to the San Francisco area, and I'll be out there almost like mid to late March, so if any of you cats are in the San Francisco, East Bay area, let me know, hit me up. I'm also, uh, I'll be going down to LA probably two or three times a month as well, so I will officially be leaving the East Coast, heading out to the West Coast. I'm excited about it. I have a ton of friends out there, and there's a bunch of opportunities out there as well. And I'm excited to connect with some some West Coast cats. So if you're out there, let me know. Hit me up, and we can get together. I'd love to have a meetup when I'm out there, start getting into that scene a little bit more, or a lot more, I should say. So let me know. I'll be on the West Coast soon. Also... If you haven't already, check out the documentary, the mini documentary that we did with Chad Smith. We did it at the Wells Fargo Center in Philly, my hometown, hung out with him backstage, stayed for the show, had a little interview with him, actually like a half hour interview that we'll be releasing soon. But you can check all that out at at YouTube. I keep saying Drummer's Resource, but YouTube.com forward slash Drummer's Resource. It is a pretty cool little documentary that me and my buddy Rippy helped me put it together. So huge thanks to him as well. Now, let's get into this conversation with my man, Jimmy Chamberlain, and I've been a Smashing Pumpkins fan for years, so I've heard his playing on numerous records, and I have heard his records playing thousands of times, and it's great to actually be able to sit down, chat with him, and we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about life, we talk about music, we talk about his new endeavors in in tech and media, and the love of playing and some rough roads that he hit with, with addiction and, and getting kicked out of the band and then rejoining the band and placing value on the things that are important and not worrying about the things that are not important. And a really, really great message. We talk about fame and the trappings of fame and all that. So just a really, a really great conversation, a really inspiring conversation and a ton of great information from Jimmy. So without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Jimmy Chamberlain. Jimmy, what's happening, man? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. I can't complain. How about yourself? Pretty good, yeah. Just uh, just got back from Dublin. Uh, I was doing uh, some speaking over there uh, at a tech conference, believe it or not, a Dublin Tech Summit, and then I did a uh, I did a master class at the BIM School over there. So very cool. Nice. So you're doing. It's funny that you know once I started doing a lot. I mean, I've been. A Smashing Pumpkins fan for years, listen to you guys and everything, but never knew how involved you are with with tech and startups and things like that. And that's something that speaks to me. I'm I'm you know I'm a drummer, but I love technology. I love uh, I love media and all those sorts of things. So I'm reading all the stuff that you do, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I I'm like I this guy's like the same guy as me, except yeah. you know, way cooler and hipper. But 
Well, I appreciate that. But so let's, I want to build just a, a little bit of backstory for the audience. Um, I'm guessing there's nobody listening who doesn't know who the Smashing Pumpkins are, but I, I, the reason I like to get the backstory, one, it builds context of, of who they're listening to uh, in their ears, but also th- how the influence of the, influences of the people who you were listening to growing up shaped your sound, you know, through Smashing Pumpkins and everything, because I think that you were a rock guy, but you had jazz influences and you had that swing feel and you had that that sort of that that loping sound that you hear from like guys like Bonham and things like that. So sure. It, Thank you. Though. Yeah, sure. Uh, if you could just sort of give a little bit of your of, of your backstory and then uh, and then we'll get deeper. Sure. So, um, you know, I grew up in a big family, uh, the youngest of six kids. Um, my dad was a uh, worked on the railroad, but was a very much a musician um, in his own right. Uh, played clarinet and, you know, was a big uh, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, Pete Fountain, Artie Shaw, uh, those kinds of records. Um, and um, so was really exposed to a lot of great uh, big band drumming uh, early on. Everybody from Krupa to Belson to Dave Tuff. I mean, Cozy Cole, Sonny Greer, um, and really just always loved that kind of big band pocket. Um but then on the other hand, I've had five older brothers and sisters that were really, you know, on the cutting edge um, and I'm the youngest by 18 years. So, I mean, there's oh, a, wow. there's a big gap. Right. So so my rest, my listening uh, from the rock side started with like the Beach Boys and the Turtles and then and then uh, evolved into, you know, the Hendrix and who and 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 Mahavishnu. My brother was a drummer. I mean, so a lot of that stuff. But. I think uh, the most kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, formative or, or influential sibling I have is my sister, Laura. I mean, she was not a musician, but really had just a real uh, sophisticated palette. And she would play uh, everything from Mose Allison to Thelonious Monk to Thad Jones and Mel Lewis, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, Traffic, like those types of records. But she was really, uh, really invested in, in that type of uh, evolved playing. Um, so... And for me, it was really, it wasn't really genre specific. It was just about kind of what was good, right? So mm-hmm. anything, you know, from, you know, I, I could walk into my brother's room, maybe listen to like Gino Manali or something, which would be, you know, crazy stuff. And then he, he was a drummer as well. So he's always turning me on to, you know, every time a record came out, or it's like Blow by Blow by Jeff Beck. I mean, he's like, okay, let's check this guy Richard Bailey out, you know, and then we got into Michael Walden and then we got into Tony when Lifetime came out and then reinvestigated that and through that got into Elvin and, and Art Blakey and some of those guys. Um, you know, so again, I mean, my uh, upbringing wasn't really anything but stuff that was kind of good. Right. Well, that's a, <laughs> the, uh, it. It's funny. I. I sort of feel the same way growing up. I'm the youngest and my brothers and sisters were all into, you know, into music and I learned so much music from them and at at a really young age. So when I was like, I was literally like in sixth grade and I had like NWA shirts and public enemy shirts going into going into school. And they're like, I don't think you should be wearing these shirts, which is kind of funny. But they I mean, they turned me on to, you know, the pumpkins. They turned me on to fish. They turned me on to Grateful Dead, Alice in Change. And for me, it was I'm 35. So it was a little not that it was a little bit, you know out of my timeline but it was sort of i was hip to this stuff at like a really early age and i and then i started like hipping my friends to it yeah which is kind of a cool thing 
Yeah, that was my problem, too. I mean, I had, you know, access to the greatest records of all time at, you know, five and six years old. So by the time I started playing drums, I mean, I really, you know, would play uh, from everything from like, you know, the Allman Brothers to like Kansas records. I mean, Gino records, what, whatever I could get my hands on that sounded cool. And I was just a dork. Right. And then and then once my and then once my family figured out that, you know, I was practicing five, six hours a day and I was kind of consumed with this idea of becoming a drummer, then it became kind of a contest between my my brothers and sisters to try to get me to be more like them. Right. So my brother would be like, no, you should listen to this fusion stuff. And my sister would be like, you know, check this Jim Gordon fill out or listen to this. Let's listen to Low Spark or High Heel Boys and figure out what Gordon's doing with the ride symbol. And then my dad would sit me down and he'd play Sing 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 or some of the uh, Benny Goodman sextet stuff with Charlie Christian and would be like a jazz history lesson, right? And then, I mean, so, you know, and all of that stuff, thankfully, uh, is still very much a part of my style. I mean, it's still, I still, and I think what I learned from that is really to just, you know, the only the only kind of qualifier is that it's good, right? And, right. and even, even stuff that isn't kind of overtly intellectual, like, I really don't care. I'm not even a guy that's really consumed with great technique or blistering chops. I'm really, I'm really consumed with, like, how does it feel? Is it, is it kind of jacked up in a good way? Is it emotionally uh, relevant? Is it consistent with kind of, you know, what the band is on about versus, right. like, what people are trying to get over at any given time? Sure. Um, so, you know, and that's been kind of – that's always been – the metric um, that I've used for my own playing, just, just, you know, do you believe it or not really, which is kind of like goes back to that first Tony record that the first lifetime record with Holdsworth where, you, you know, believe it. It's like, it had such a crazy connotation, right? Because he was playing such whack shit on that right. record. Right? right. And just so it was so, I mean, protocosmos and Fred and all that stuff was just, it was so groundbreaking at the time. I mean, I remember listening to like drum fills. It sounded like he just kicked the drums down a set of stairs and then somehow he landed on the one in a way that kind of Kyle never really did it. In right, a way that right, was right. really more like uh, more akin to somebody playing like a marimba, you know, with the tonal combinations uh, and harmonic combinations that Tony was uh, using um, rather than just this kind of, you know, demonstrative percussion like onslaught. Huh. I know, you know, that's a that's a good way of, of thinking about it. I never really thought of it in, in that sort of light where you're saying, you know, the uh, it's sounding like a marimba or like just the melodic uh, interpretation of what's going on there. One one thing that you brought up that you sort of uh, we pass quickly over, but is Jim Gordon. And I, we don't talk about Jim Gordon a lot uh, on the podcast. It doesn't I, because a lot of people don't know about him, frankly. Yeah. Which, <laughs> and it's a shame what happened. And we can get into that. And I, I was talking to... Um, uh, who was I talking to? Oh, Glenn Graham from Bly Melon. And he is like a huge, huge gym. He's like, that's my favorite drummer of all sure. time. Um, but for those, for the people listening who don't know briefly, uh, Jim Gordon was a session guy. He played, he played with Derek and the Dominoes too, didn't he? Oh yeah. 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 And then he was like, he was like the, you know, Jeff Percaro before there was Jeff Percaro. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was kind of that guy in the seventies who played, you know, and all the Gordon Lightfoot, Derek and the Dominoes replaced, I think, Jim Capaldi in traffic then mm -hmm. later. Um, but, you know, just... Did he, do I, some, he did some Steely Dan stuff, too. He played on the Fez, yeah. I think, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, like, he played yeah. on the first couple Steely Dan records. And one of the... one of the I think I was reading... I forget what book I was reading. I think it might have been Clapton's last book where he talks about uh, Derek and the Dominoes. And at one point, he just says... 
that Jim Gordon was the best musician that he's ever worked with. That's insane. <laughs> right? That's I insane. Mean, I mean, for Clapo to throw that out, right. I mean, you're kind of reading it, and he's kind of paying homage to Jim and talking about his pocket and stuff. But when he lays that down, you're just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, he... And I think, you know, for him with this with the Steely Dan records, he sort of set the precedent of saying, okay, we got to get... Like, how, you can't go from Jim Gordon to like me, you know what I mean? Like you have yeah. to, you have to get. That's why I think that's why they got Purdy and they got Picaro and they got Gad and they got all those guys because like where do you go from Jim Gordon? You know, that's right. You only go down. <laughs> right, right. So Jim, so he uh, to to sort of finish the story though he he had schizophrenia and yeah. and then he murdered his mom right yeah, and then went to jail and. He was hearing voices, um, and I, I, you know, I may be getting the details kind of wrong, but I know he's, he's in prison now. Um, I believe he murdered his mom uh, in a pretty gruesome way um, uh, as a result of just hearing voices. Um, so, yeah. you know, kind of a, a tortured uh, soul. Um, but really, the the fury that he unleashed on the drum set was just incredible. I mean, that Derek and the Domino stuff when. You get him and both him and Dwayne Allman playing in the same room. I mean, it's like, Forget it. it's just blistering, right? I mean, and anything the guy played is just, it's like, I think that that stuff probably more than anything, like listening to Los Barca High Heel Boys and the, and the way he used his ride cymbal and, and the Derek stuff and the way he played so understated to the point where his baseline dynamics was, was kind of low to mid-level and then when he did something it was super explosive but not in a loud dynamic way just in a way that was kind of over where his baseline dynamic was and really had a great um just a great uh, facility in like using the ride symbol uh, as a as a both as a point of uh of bringing it in but also as a point of removal and then just like not bashing on crash symbols but using like the bell and using the middle of the ride symbol to just um to just um you know, bring other emotions into the track. I mean, I think I learned more listening to Jim Gordon's ride symbol than I've listened, than I've learned, like listening to anything else. Hmm. <laughs> there seems, and I, I think so the audience gets a little upset when I kind of talk like this, but you know, whatever, we're going to talk about it, that there's, I think that then, you know, when Jim Gordon was playing or, you know, you look at somebody like Earl Palmer, you look at somebody sure. like, like Philly Joe Jones. And I mean, they looked at every single drum, every single, every symbol as an instrument. And yeah. now I don't, I just feel like the ride symbol, I, and I don't want to generalize, but a lot of, a lot of people out there just, it's just ride symbol is just like this thing that you play that keeps time. Right. Or the hi-hat is just this thing versus looking at it as an orchestral piece of the instrument. And I don't know, maybe I'm just getting older and, and I'm, I'm starting to sound like this, this like crotchety old guy that are like, these teenagers don't know what the hell they're doing. But, sure. but do you see that? Or am I just like, am I just looking at it with, with blinders on? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think it was a different time and I think self-expression, um, you know, drums were a, di- were a different type of vehicle for self-expression. I think back then, you know, pre pro tools and pre YouTube, I mean, when it was purely a listening exercise, right. When, when we had to like, when all there was, was the record 
to go and listen to. You got to a point where you really were dissecting every nuance and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what it means. Once you could go and kind of watch that stuff on YouTube, it stopped. Being, it started to be less about the why of drumming and more about the how and what. Right. So right. kids can learn kind of how and what and kind of hit the drum in the middle and blah blah blah. But when you're just sitting there in a dark room listening to that stuff, you're like, why is he hitting it harder there and why is he hitting it softer there? Right. When you're when you're watching it, it becomes a visual experience. Um, you know, it, I don't think it has as uh, heavy a weight to it mm-hmm. um you know i think drums they've changed a bit i mean i think pro tools has really changed things i think quantization has really changed things i mean if you listen to those derek and the dominoes records where i mean you know obviously it's jim gordon so the timing is impeccable right they're not all over the place but there's there's tracks like i think tell the truth or, or why does love have to be so sad or like the ending of the song is just some guy screws like bobby whitlock plays a wrong chord and then they just stop and that's the end right <laughs> like they never play it again right <laughs> but somehow it becomes a hit song yeah um, <laughs> and there's and because there's you know I look at it like this, like the conversation that we're having right now. I think these, you know, the first 15 interviews that I did would be cool. But then after that, nobody would listen anymore. If I asked you the same exact question, or every yeah, sure. single person, the same exact questions. And it was very robotic. And, you know, and it's like we I may, uh, you know, we may have a conversation and both of us are kind of tired and it kind of sits lower or we may be both excited. and We're screaming and yelling. And I think that 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 translates in the studio or on stage and. And when you, I, you know, when you're pulling that, that, that conversation and natural organic element out of it, then it, I don't know, it gets kind of sterile. Well, that's right. And I think the idea with music or any type of artistic expression is to be documenting in present time, right? I mean, you're, you're documenting how you feel at that exact moment, which is why I love playing jazz. I mean, even when you're recording a jazz record, it generally only takes as long to make it as it does to listen to it. I mean, you're just going and like blowing off live, live takes, right? And the Pumpkins recording was a lot like that, but still after the drum take, you're, then you're assembling, you know, this kind of, this kind of idealized version of the song. Right. Um, How much of your recordings were done live versus, versus overdub? I mean, obviously you're going to overdub some stuff, but how much of it was, was recorded live versus, you know, so all all the drums were recorded live to tape, um, Mm -hmm. including the Zeitgeist stuff with, you know, very, if there was any editing, it was, it was maybe the front half of one's take and the back half of another, but they were always recorded live uh, with no click um, just because we really wanted that visceral emotion. And right. we, we found over the time, over time through like editing that even, <clears throat> even with editing as a potential um, option, you play differently. Mm-hmm. Right. You and, and I hear it all the time. I know a lot about a lot of drummers. Right. And right. I hear I hear them going for stuff that because they're go, they're going for it because they know they can save their butts later. Right. But sure. if, you're go, if you're playing, you know, a song like United States, which is like 10 minutes long or a song like Silverfuck, which is long. And, you know, you got to dial in that one take you're playing like your life dependent on it because it's right. different, right? And maybe that's what was so cool about listening to Gordon and Kellner and all those guys. And they're recording the tape. Yeah. And Newmark, right? <laughs> it's like when you hear them, it's like, you know, that they're so focused on that track. They're so focused on it. It's so important to get those emotions across, to get the articulation across, to get the, the technique across. And it's like, there's an energy in that that's mm-hmm. encapsulated. And I think, as human beings, when we listen to that stuff, we can, we can, we can listen to it compassionately and react to it. 
um, with the same type of emotions because we're watching somebody do or we're listening to somebody do something that's incredible. Right. And almost it, it's almost sort of a, a metaphor for how things are today in general, sort of the, dispo- <laughs> you know, like the disposable society of yeah, like, right. oh, well, just whatever. If we blow this take, we'll just get another one. You're not spending 250 grand on a record anymore and recording right. on, you know, $600 reels. It's like, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just hit edit and cut and do it again. And then we'll do it again, do it again. That's right. And not, you know, not to get all metaphysical about it, but I think, I think at some point, you know, the music is always going to be reflective of the culture that consumes it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be reflective of the sophistication or the intellectual capacity of that culture that consumes it as well. Just like, you know, Mozart was a reflection of some intellectual renaissance that was going on. And so was Beethoven and and certainly Bach, um, you know, uh, and and the pumpkins as well. I mean, 93 people were like you were reading Jack Kerouac again, and they were reading Ginsburg and Dostoevsky and those types of things, which gave us a a foundation to go and write things that were fairly sophisticated. But Mm -hmm. I think today, right. I mean, you're looking at a world that's, and, and also, I think when you're recording in that manner, there's an accountability um, that gets you into a relationship of giving, right? You're, you know that I know that the more I practice a part or the more I'm giving to my instrument, the more I'm going to get back, right? right? When you take that kind of equation away through, you know, beat detective or quantization or whatever the hell else you're doing, you lose some of that accountability. And I think then, then you have kind of then you get in a situation where you've got more buy-in to the world we live in, right? It's more narcissistic. It's more self-serving. It's more about, you know, what has Kanye got? What has he got? How do I get that? He's got a jet, blah, blah, blah. Right. As opposed to like, fuck, I just want to play a great take. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's an interesting way of look at it. You know, it's sort of keeping up with the Joneses and playing that. Because before, nobody knew that much about everyone else you know before like pre-internet and i'm a big internet guy don't get it you know i mean i've run a business on a on a laptop so like let's Mm -hmm. you know and i'm so i'm not going to say i that i don't love technology and i love where it's going and i love the ease of it but agreed that like you know you look at kanye and you're like man he's got a jet i want a jet you know, like, or whatever, you know, whatever it is. It's like, man, I want to, I want to, I want a Ferrari, you know, like. Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, I think, I think it's about balance, right? I think, the, look, the pumpkins, you know, in, in the late 90s, we had a jet and we had Ferraris. I mean, we made a shit ton of money. We were super fortunate to have lived during a time where people still bought records. And, right. you know, we were smart enough about our record deals back then to where we still, you know, we still make a good living on streaming and everything else. I mean, nobody's, nobody's starving. Right. Um, you know, in spite of the economic hit that the record business has taken, you know, we were, we were, you know, uh, we were uh, studious enough, you know, in uh, in uh, uh, fomenting those contracts to where, you know, we were able to build reversions and that allowed us to renegotiate when the economics changed. So, you know, that's all, that's all part of it. But I mean, so yeah, that was I mean, written into your contract that sort of technology as it changed, you could renegotiate. Well, the idea is that you never want to you never want to write a contract that's going to last more than five, seven years. Right. Because, you know, the economic model can change and that contract can be anachronistic very, very quickly. Right. So the idea is always to write in some type of reversion that gives you an opportunity to renegotiate from a position of strength. 
uh, as time goes on, because like I said, you know, betting on the music business is like, you know, it's going to like going to the Kentucky Derby, you know, <laughs> half out of your mind and trying to bet on the winning horse. I mean, it's it's not, you know, it doesn't happen too often. Right. Um, so, you know, you got to do everything you can from a business standpoint to insulate your position. Um, and again, you know, I think, um, you know, that's where that accountability comes in. It's like. You know, if you've lived a life where you're accountable to your instrument, you're probably more likely going to be accountable to those types of business dealings as well. Sure, um, sure. Um, but again, I mean, I think, you know, having 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 lived that life and, and now, believe me, I don't, you know, I don't live that life. I've got two kids in private school, which is, you know, that's my Ferrari now. And, right. you know, my jet is something else, which it doesn't fly. Right. Uh, you, know, <laughs> um, you know, I've got, you know, I'm, you know, I've traded in a lot of that stuff for a lawnmower and a rake. I mean, I, you know, I live, you know, a pretty simply simple life, but I do still practice every day. I mean, I still right. go into my studio and, I, you know, my next step after this interview is to go down and, and work on some stuff. I've been talking to Johnny Rab about some jungle stuff and some drum and bass stuff that I'm working on. So <laughs> me and so, Johnny are like this. He's a good yeah, buddy of mine. Yeah, I love yeah. Johnny. So, so he's, you know, got, I'm, you know, down listening to Fotec and stuff like that now, nice. uh, which is great. But, you know, I think, what it comes down to is an understanding of kind of how you quantify success, right? Um, you know, how do you create parameters for yourself that allow you to identify when you're successful? Because I think a lot of guys who live in this kind of world where their their only yardstick is somebody else's yardstick, mm -hmm. they never really know when they're successful because being a successful musician doesn't have anything to do with it yet. It has a lot to do with like a successful practice session or a great gig you know, but as far as the pumpkins are concerned, or my journey anyway, I always tell people, regardless of where, you know, whether I was playing, if I was playing the United Center, if I wasn't playing to 20,000 people some night, I would have been playing to 100 people some night. I mean, right. it's, it's just what I always did. So the, the economics were always, I mean, the economics were always kind of a, uh, you were dreaming of some type of upward mobility, but the idea that that would congeal in a in a in a in a band like the Pumpkins were always you know pretty far off. So, so what I do mean, you say to the guy who says, "Well, it's easy for you to say because you sold millions of records and played <laughs> at all these stadiums and had Ferraris and jets and sure, yeah." I mean, as Corgan and I always say, you know, it's easy to have integrity when you live in a mansion. But... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's certainly easier, but. Sure. But nevertheless, I mean, I feel like we made integral decisions during the times that were tough. I mean, you have to look at, you know, uh, in order to prove my point, maybe I could point to, you know, the fact that when the Pumpkins made our first record in 1991, it was made with our own money that we had been saving up since 1988. I mean, we had gone, we had agreed that, you know, we, were, we weren't going to take any money out of our live proceeds. We were going to use it to spend, we were going to spend it all on our first record. So we'd have as little uh, as possible record companies company input. Mm -hmm. So when we signed to Virgin Records in 1991, that record was made with none of their money. So, right. so you know, that set a precedent for us moving on, uh, moving forward to have as much creative control as we had. So when we got to a position to where, you know, there was pushback around an album like Melancholy, we really, they didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, we, right. they didn't really, we didn't really owe them anything, right? Sure. So, so, you know, those are the types of things that I'm talking about, you know, not taking that early money or not mortgaging, you know, part of your musical integrity to get a leg up on economics or some type of other lifestyle condition, because the journey of a musician is, you know, it is a journey and it has to be about the music. I mean, certainly I have other journeys going on right now that are in technology and I, I'm certainly, uh, 
looking uh, towards education to spend a lot of my time, uh, especially as the father of two young kids. Um, but that journey in music is, you know, whole, whole uh, you know, lives kind of unto itself. And that's, right. you know, still inhabits that kind of sacred space. So talk without getting too far down, you know, the, the finance side of things, talk about the difference of, you know, the position of owning the band or being a member of the band versus being a sideman. And what advice you have for people now who are either in a band or are sort of, you know, doing the sideman thing. Is it, is it sometimes it's just luck and you end up like I was talking to, I was with Chad Smith last week and he was saying that like, you know, yeah, talk about lucky man, that guy, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I love Chad. <laughs> yeah, I, I do too. He's been very, uh, very kind to me. Yeah, he's great. But the, you know, he said it's sort of the same thing you said that, you know, it doesn't matter if, if he wasn't in the Chili Peppers. Yeah, he'd be playing in Detroit. He'd be playing in Detroit or in L.A. somewhere. And, you know, Not so Detroit. Yeah. You think he'd move back? <laughs> <laughs> they kick him out of L.A. <laughs> uh, but it's it's tough, you know, if you don't get that that hit, if you don't get into that band that's successful and it doesn't even have to be you know, as successful as you guys were or the Chili Peppers. But at some point, you know, there has to be this, you have to, fi- you got to figure it out money wise. If you want to, you know, get married, have kids or this or that. And I, I just, I wonder what the, what the approach is coming from someone who's, who's done it this way. Uh, how maybe you would have approached it differently. Had you not been in, in pumpkins? I know that's a hard question to answer, but. I mean, again, I just go back to the fact that, you know, it's what what's the foundation of the journey? I mean, it's, if it's economics, then you certainly should be uh, concerned with maybe becoming a musical hobbyist and trying to find some other ways to generate income. Um, if you truly want to be a musician, then it has to be about playing first, right? And economics second. And that's really, that's the most important thing. I think the thing I learned from my dad was that you know, he, he worked on the railroad, but he loved his job. Right. And I, and I knew that like the most important thing was to find, it's like, it's like, it's like, I don't drink anymore or anything like that. Right. And I, and what I, and what I found was not to get like all, cause I'm not like a program guy, but, but what it came down to was like, you know, our, our part of our job here is to develop uh, and build a life that's we don't want to escape from, right? Sure. <laughs> like my right. life before, in spite of having a jet and all that stuff, I wanted to escape from because all the other shit was really messy. Mm-hmm. You know, now my life is very, very kind of clear. I've got two healthy kids. I love my wife. I mean, that stuff is you know paramount to to my happiness. And I think with um, with music, it's the same thing. It's like you've got to be able to quantify. Uh, and and identify parameters in which you can be successful. Mm-hmm. And it's never too early to start thinking about this stuff. If all you're worried about is getting in a big band, then man, you better move to the city and start playing with some big bands, right? Or right. put put your ass on the line um, because that's what Chad did. I mean, I know a lot of guys that went out there, including Johnny Machine from Chicago, who went out and auditioned for that Chili Peppers gig. But I've heard from everybody in that room that there was no doubt that Chad was that drummer. Right. And, it's, and right. So, I mean, and it's like when people used to come and see the Pumpkins, they would, we would be playing some show at like one in the morning to 20 people. And some, you know, my brother would be there and he goes, he'd be like, man, 
you're playing like your life depended on it. And I'm like, yeah, because my it, life does. It does. On, right? It does. So if you're not, if you're not, you know, doing it like your life depended on it and you're expecting, you know, some contribution from the music business or somebody throw you a bone, blah, blah, blah. I just don't believe in that stuff. I mean, I think, look, if you're a great drummer, if you're a great musician, there's no doubt you will find work, right? right and if right. you're not, if you're not finding work, then something is not, something's in flux. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I think I mean, there's... Look at, look at, not to interrupt, but no, look, no, at, no. Like, Go ahead. look at, look at like Keith, right? Look at Carlock, right? Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Keith at the 55 bar with Wayne Krantz and going, holy shit, right? Just my jaw hit the floor. Yep. And Keith and I were both Yamaha guys at the time. So we like went up and talked to him, had no idea who he was, but I told my wife at the time, I go, just watch six months from now, just right. watch this guy six months from now. We, we got in an email six months later, he emailed me, I'm going out with Steely Dan. Right. I mean, right. Right. What do you need to know about drama, man? Just look at, <laughs> look at Keith Carlock, look at Josh Reese, look at Kenny, look yep. at any of these guys. Like for me, being a session drummer, I just, I'm really into composition. I'm really into arranging. So the idea that I'm going to go in and sit in on somebody else's music or try to play what I'm told, it's just not my thing, right? right. I, I play to my strengths. So if you don't want to sound like a, cause, and people say like, oh, I had Chamberlain play on my record. Now it sounds like a pumpkin record. Well, it's like, okay, well, that's a pretty big compliment to me, right? right. I, mean, right. I mean, I don't take that in, in the right. wrong way. You hired me and you got me. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm not the guy who's going to come in and play, um, you know, the John Fogarty record. That's Kenny or that's, you know, sure. these other guys. I mean, they're super good at it. And mm-hmm. I've, I've even recommended those guys for gigs when the, I've gotten called. Um, but, you know, you've got to know, like, what success means. Look at, I mean, look at those guys. They're super successful. Look at Chad. He's super successful. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, look at the guys who, who didn't get that gig. I mean, Johnny Machine with, you know, with Taurus. I mean... A groundbreaking, influential drummer who's you know one of my all-time favorites. I yeah, mean, yeah. You know what's 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 you know what are we looking for? For me, uh, when I joined the Pumpkins, I wasn't looking for Grammy awards. I was looking for the cover of my drummer, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was going to say that I, I think I mean I've never I'm I've never been famous, but I there to me there's a big difference between recognition among among your peers and sure. fame and. Yeah, right. Shep Gordon, you know Shep Gordon, the uh, the, the he's the agent. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, no album. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know he he used to tell his clients all the time. Listen, if I do my job perfectly, it'll kill you. Yep. Because fame is not, and you can speak to this a lot better than I can, of course. But like, it's not it's not as uh as amazing as it sounds, is it? No, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. And and you talk about now having clarity and and you know there was a, a rough patch with you with the, you know the there was the you, the heroin thing and 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 that whole and I don't know how deep you want to get into that but I have to I I have to ask or I because I would imagine that it had to do something with with the fame and sort of like absolutely and escapism I mean, and and not having the tools in my toolbox to deal with you know the idea that you know I was a fully functioning you know, wealthy man now. I mean, you know, my father passing away, the idea that you wake up and realize that your value is really predicated on record sales and money and all this other stuff when your value started off being predicated on like how much you practice. Right. Right. Right? So all of a sudden, you know, you're, um, you know, the mechanism by which your success is measured has totally been flip-flopped into something that's completely, you know, shallow and hollow. 
Mm -hmm. And and the more kind of the more you kind of uh, uh, interject yourself into that shallowness and that hollowness, the more you become perceptively better. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So every time you do some dumb shit, the band gets more recognition. You know, you're doing then you're doing your job. Well, what's my job is to be a great drummer is to be some, you know, textbook kind of archetypal rock star who is, you know, you know, you know, path of scorched earth. It's like that stuff gets very confusing to, you know, somebody who's extremely emotionally wound up like me. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, ask anybody that knows me. I mean, I'm a very emotional person and I'm, you know, and that's part of the reason I play an instrument is because I need something, a canvas in which to get that stuff out. Right. Um, but again, I mean, you start to realize that music could be the enemy now. Like the thing that I, the very thing that I love is the very thing that's going to take me down. Right. Was it the, and, was it the fame? You know, it was everything. It was the fame. It was the idea that, you know, you had gone, uh, you know, through this kind of Augustinian trial by fire with these three other people who, you know, you don't really know, uh, who, you know, you have doubts as to whether they have your back or not. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on, you know, through your head. And, and also like, you're starting to think like, man, I just wanted to be a drummer who, to your point, like was just, you know, uh, uh, recognized by my peers and my contemporaries as doing, you know, doing some good work. And then I kind of got thrown into this, this, this shit storm, um, of abuse. And then, you know, of course I've got a, a psychological and a, and a physical, uh, uh, uh <clears throat> predilection to, uh, to, to abuse and addiction. So you throw that in and you get a perfect storm of like, man, shit's really going to hit the fan here. Right. So what was the, what was sort of the turning point where was it, was it after the death of the, of your bandmate? Was it? No. I mean, I'd like to say that that was a wake up call, but things, things didn't get better for me. I mean, things got better. Right. And I was able to manage it uh, after that and certainly, uh, you know, pull it back a little bit. But things for me, it became again about the quantification of success and the quantification of things in my life that have value. And for me, it became about getting married, having my first uh, child, my daughter, Audrey, and then really taking a look and putting everything on the scale and going, this is a mess. If I continue down this path, I'm going to lose the things that are sacred to me, including my wife and my daughter. And I just can't deal with that. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to lose my relationship with my instrument, which is the oldest relationship I have. Right. Right. I've got a relationship with this thing since I was eight years old. I've always trusted my instrument. It's always trusted me. It's always given me back more than I've given. Mm -hmm. So, so what are you going to do with that? So the only logical choice for me was health, right? I mean, I'm going to, you know, do the most punk rock thing I can think of, which is completely stop drinking, quit everything, and I'm never going back, right? And right. that's what I did. It's been 15 years now. Wow. Congratulations. You know, I mean, I mean, it's not even like a congratulations thing. I don't feel like, you know, oh, you did this thing. I was just like, for me, it's just like, it's the same reason you practice a paradiddle, right? You got I mean, right. to get from point A to point B, man. You want to raise kids? I mean, you got to figure this stuff out. So, sure. I mean, I do feel good now that I can raise my kids, uh, you know, by example and say, look, you know, I, I've created a life that I don't want to escape from. It's our, you know, that's our goal here. Right. Right. It reminds me of the, you know, create a life that you don't need a vacation from, which. Yeah, right. You yeah. Know, it's it's amazing. like Buddy Rich used to say, like, retirement's for people who hate their jobs. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to retire. <laughs> I have no desire to retire at all.
Musicians Institute in Hollywood is now the official education partner of Drummer's Resource, and they have a very important message about making it now in this climate of the of the music business. Most in-demand drummers, they've always focused on musical issues such as touch and tone and feel, but those techniques are no longer enough now in this musical climate. Many today's successful drummers are also experts in business, music, and all areas of content creation, songwriting, recording, etc. So in order to stay working, Musicians Institute suggests that you not ignore these trends. Rather than allowing engineers and business people to define your artistic success, today's drummers are embracing working and playing with them. So not only do you have to get your drumming chops together, you also have to get your business and tech chops together. And I could not agree more. Here's a little fun fact for you. Did you know that in 1972, DW Drums, as we know it today, started as a drum school in Santa Monica, California by Don Lombardi? Then in 1983, after bringing a couple products to market, they introduced the first ever double pedal design that changed drumming forever. 2012 was their 40th anniversary. And then in 2015, Gretsch, LP, and Gibraltar and other American percussion brands joined the DW family. So it's been an amazing ride for the last 40 plus years and you can learn all about that amazing ride and how they have really influenced the face of drumming over the last 40 plus years at dwdrums.com hey for all you classic cats out there you can revisit the golden era of drumming with evan's 56 calf tone they're made in new york from advanced synthetic materials and fitted with diadario's level 360 technology evan's 56 calf tone delivers the warm familiar sound you love with the quality and consistency of a modern drummer's demand. Learn how you can get the Caftone sound for yourself at evansdrumheads.com. Now let's get back into it with Jimmy Chamberlain. You know, it's interesting where, you know, you're talking about going through getting, you know, the band getting big, going through the fame. I don't think there's ever been any band or person who has achieved fame without some sort of thing that some sort of bumpy road. I mean, well, you look at the guy, you look at the chili peppers, you look at, I mean, you look yeah. at any band, any band that's out there because it's, it's, I, it's got it. It's hard to deal with. It's just, it's just a thing that like, I would imagine it blows my mind when I go to Nam and three people recognize me. Yeah. And I'm like, well, Oh, that's kind of, it's kind of a weird, th- I appreciate it, but it's kind of a weird thing. Let alone, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of people. So, you know, I think, you know, I think you get used to it, but I think, you know, um, you know, to your point, I mean, I think it's just, what do you, what do you, you know, and again, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a business uh, of artistic expression, right. Where guys are like, if you look at Billy, Billy Corgan or, you know, Anthony or any of these guys, you're talking about guys that are, you know, having to mortgage a significant part of their identity in order to even to facilitate the existence they want. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you're left with a percentage of your identity that you can call your own. Right. And oftentimes that identity is not enough to sustain a lifetime. Right. Right. It does that, that identity that you're left with is not enough to facilitate a successful marriage. It's not enough to negotiate a healthy path through life. It's Mm -hmm. not enough to, uh, you know, uh, jump over the hurdles that the music business can give you. Um, so that's where the failings come in, right? Because you, because you've mortgaged your resources in order to, you know, expel this art from your, from your soul, 
you're left with very little to kind of go forward with. Right. And that's, right. you know, the, the most successful guys like, you know, you look at Dylan, right. Or you look at Springsteen or you look at Paul McCartney or, or the guys that have been able to weather the storm. They're very insulated with that part of their, with that part of their identity. Right. It hasn't, you know, there's a, there's a part of Paul that we don't see. There's a part of Bruce that's wholly his own, that he's mm-hmm. kept that sacred. The artists that have had a hard time is where they're, where a hundred percent of their identity is the guy. Right. Right. And that, right. and that for me, like I, I identified that 15 years ago and I said, look, I don't want to be the drummer in Smashing Pumpkins because it mortgages so much of my identity. It takes up, it takes up the whole pie. That's why I started really looking at technology and education and even Mm -hmm. coaching my kids baseball team or, you know, getting into, you know, my son's uh, sports or, you know, anything that kind of identifies you apart from this thing that you're known for gives gives you more tools in your toolbox to kind of navigate your life. Right. And now if you look at my, you know, wiki, it's like, yeah, I'm most known for being the drummer for the pumpkins, but I'm also a tech guy. I was the CEO of a tech company. Um, you know, I sit on the board of Columbia college. I mean, I'm really, uh, you know, invested in education. Uh, I'm building some, uh, educational programs with Corey Chisel right now up in Appleton, Wisconsin. So I've got all, I'm writing a book. I mean, I've got all this other stuff going on. Right. Right. To help me insulate myself from that guy. Sure, sure. So what? So now I know that you were you were in the Pumpkins, and then after the the overdose and everything, you got fired from the Pumpkins. Then you you were back, and then so you left again. And now you are you officially done? No, I don't think you're ever officially done. You know, right. I, I I think you know we're talking about doing some touring later this year, and for me, it's really. You know, the pumpkins has become more about an ideal, right? Mm-hmm. More about like, what does it all mean? And 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 to go back and celebrate the music sounds like a fun thing to do, right? I right. I, I I can go back and, and kind of celebrate that music, but the idea that you're going to kind of go back and try to re-become something, you know, that gets right. dangerous for me because that gets into this value thing again, where you're saying like my past is more value than my present. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. once you get into that conversation with yourself, it gets super murky, right? It starts to confuse your path forward. Um, right. For me, there's no more about, there's nothing more valuable than like this minute, right? Or present time. And I don't want to have, you know, I can use the wisdom of the past, to go forward, but I don't want to have to mortgage my present time to go mine the components of the past to kind of forge a path forward. That makes total sense. Right. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I get Because it. you don't make those choices anymore, right? I don't play the, the intro to Tristessa. I mean, it sounds dumb to me now. I'm just like, I mean, <laughs> it was great in 1991 when I had a mullet and I was wearing like thrift store clothes, right? It was like the perfect intro for that haircut. Right. But right, I mean, right. right, right now. For those not- of you who do, I can see Jimmy right now. You guys can't see him. He, he still has the mullet. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I, I got that mullet wig that I put on, but <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I had the mullet. Um, but 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 really, <laughs> it would think, be pretty. It would be pretty <laughs> badass if you still had the right? mullet. I'm bringing it back yeah. um, with the flowery shirts and all yeah, that stuff, yeah. and the medallion. But um, but I think uh, I mean it's 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 a moment in time, right? Mm-hmm. And you, it's just like Miles, you know, you, you move forward, right? And, right? and you can go back and play homage. You can go, Miles could go back and play with Quincy Jones at Montreux, that great concert with Wallace Roney, right? Right, right, right? I mean, where he just, you know, they play summertime and the whole place just falls over, mm-hmm. uh, including us watching on TV. Um, 
but you know, the, the present has got to be about the present, right? Right. Because if you, if, and we tried this on Zeitgeist, well, we're, we're, you know, I was going back and listening to old pumpkin stuff in order to facilitate something that sounded like pumpkins because I had been away from it for so long. Mm-hmm. And then you're listening to that stuff and going, God, I just don't make those choices anymore, right? I just don't play that way anymore. And I mean, you know, there's got to be some way, you know, to where, like even Billy, I mean, he's, the stuff he's playing now, he's got this beautiful kind of acoustic thing going on that's like incredibly uh, uh, showcasing his songwriting ability. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, encumbered by all this kind of production stuff, which is, you know, great for him. I mean, he's found a great outlet in in that's that's really exposes what's great about him, which is his his ability to you know articulate harmony, melody, and and our arrangements in a way that are super compelling. Sure. Um, do you want to go and put fur coats on that stuff? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, it just, you know, it's 80 degrees out. You don't want to wear a fur coat. I mean, it's, I get it. Yeah. So that's, you know, again, to go back and play those charts. Yeah, no problem, man. I, you know, I could get it up to go and try to play, you know, an Ode to No One or Jelly Belly and that stuff. I mean, it's super hard to play. It isn't mm-hmm. a lot different than learning, you know, Johnny Rapp's freehand technique. I mean, right. it's like, it's going to take a while, right? Um, you know, I'm really out of my element here, but it's fun to do from an exercise standpoint. But from a decision-making standpoint and a spiritual standpoint, you don't want to have to be going to that, you know, that old bank account. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about Jimmy Chamberlain, the CEO, tech guy, uh, you know, keynote speaker guy. I'm 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 really interested. <laughs> the real in, Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah, the real one. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's it's interesting to me because, like I said, you know, when we started, there's a lot of things that you're interested in that I'm interested in. Um, so I want to hear about I I want to hear about the stuff that you're doing in media. I want to hear sort of the the reasoning behind that and how you got into it. I want to hear about Blue Jay strategies. So sure. wherever you want to start with that. Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, the last time I kind of officially left the band, which is 2009, um, I took a year off and did, did some songwriting and put out a little bit of music, but really was trying to find something other to do, uh, other to do than mm-hmm. uh, something else to do other than music. Um, that still had, uh, you know, some some type of artistic component to it. And right about that time, Groupon was taking off in Chicago. Um, technology was kind of this new kind of buzzword. You know, Twitter and Facebook were these new kind of things. There was new mechanisms for communication. And, and really, if you look at, you know, social media or technology, it's just become kind of another mechanism for expression, for self-expression, right? And, and in addition to that, um, there was a real, there was a cultural movement around technology around 2011, 2012 that was very akin to kind of what was going around, going on around MTV in the 90s. Right. There, was a, there was a youth movement that was attached to it, that was attracted to it, that was using it as an identifier, kind of archetypally. Um, so just as a, uh, from a curiosity standpoint, I started to dip my toe in the water. I met with uh, Andrew Mason, who was the CEO of Groupon at that point, who I'd known for many years. In fact, a funny story. So Andrew, um, Andrew actually used to be the intern at Electrical Audio at Steve Albini's studio. Oh, really? So, so when we recorded the Zwan record, like Andrew was one of the guys who worked there, you know, and we, they had guys that like would go out and get food for lunch. And then, of course, the next time I saw him, he was just cashed like an $800 million chip. <laughs> so 
Yeah. So just, you know, always be nice to everybody is the, is the, <laughs> be is nice the to people on your way up. Cause you may have to pass them on your way down. <laughs> yeah. It's the lesson there. But, but anyway, you know, I started to talk about Andrew and he got me, you know, really kind of thinking about technology and even, even he pitched me uh, to start a record company or something like that using the uh, database of Groupon. Um, but really kind of just fell into it organically, just started uh, talking to guys, meeting guys. I met this guy, Kevin Weller in Chicago, who was at that point the CEO of the Chicago Entrepreneurial Society. Um, and, you know, I started to talk to him about uh, the role of music and culture versus the role of technology and culture. And the more I started to hear myself think, the more I thought, man, I think uh, I think a knowledge of really this journey through music and uh, creating compelling uh, compositions is very synergistic with what's going on in technology. Mm -hmm. um, so through through those uh, <clears throat> acquaintances, I got you know invited to sit in on pitch sessions more and more. I started to, to Chicago. The the tech community was very small at that time. There was probably right. ten or twelve guys. So. You know, every bit of news that came around, I was kind of privy to it. And then one day I got a call from a guy uh, who worked with uh, J.B. Pritzker uh, in his fund, the uh, what was in the I2A fund, to come and look at this company Live One. Um, so I went down just purely as a kind of a uh, uh, looking at it from an investment standpoint. And when I saw their technology and what they were trying to do, which was create uh, social media ecosystems for live stream content, I would, it just—it was just one of those things where a bell went off, and I said, "Man, I know a lot about this. I know about environments and the importance of efficacious environments when it comes to content consumption, because it's essentially what I've been doing in the physical space for about 25 years, right? right. So if you just take that—that that understanding of like." It's not just the chili peppers at Lollapalooza, it's Lollapalooza, right? Or you take that 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 ideology that like that idea that like Coachella sells out before they announce artists, but it, digital there was really no uh, efficacious environment in which you could consume content. There wasn't really no social uh, mechanism at that point. And what these guys were trying to create was the kind of digital venue. Right, um, right. For, so you and I could have a conversation in and around Pitchfork or Lollapalooza. Mm -hmm. And it was very, um, it was very music based at that time. But when I joined the company, I kind of got it more into sports and some other, some people that actually could actually pay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, I mean, I just, like I said, I just, I fell into that, that company, uh, first just as a, as an advisor. And then I, I got kind of caught the bug. They brought me on as director of partnerships because obviously I had a huge Rolodex in media. Mm -hmm. Um, I could get through to just about anybody. Uh, and then we embarked on a CEO search. Uh, we had about two or three candidates and the two co-founders in the board just came to me and said, man, we don't know anybody that's more OCD than you about this stuff. And I, at that point, I'd already read like the lean startup, the hard thing about hard, right. the innovators dilemma. I mean, I, I had read like the mythical man month, like every book I could get my hands on about running a tech company I'd already read and was really, um, at least in their opinion, not not in my opinion, but kind of on the cutting edge of what uh, of all the information that was mm -hmm. available as far as how to build, you know, a successful company. So they said, you know, we want to offer you the position of CEO. And I was kind of blown away. I was, you know, it was one of those things where when I got into tech and my wife asked me that million dollar question, like, what do you want to do here? Like, what's going on? Right. You're spending like, it's like 11 o'clock and you're still on your computer. Right? And I, just, I see you less now than I saw you when you were on tour. <laughs> what, what's going on here? And I said, well, she, and she just said, you know, kind of, um, she said, what's the goal? And I said, well, 
I mean, shit, it'd be great if I could just run a tech company at some point. She's like, are, are you crazy? And, it, you know, just kind of, you know, reminiscent. She's like, go play drum. <laughs> right. And I think just, you know, it's just kind of the way my life is. And then like six months later, I was CEO of this company and she was just kind of shaking her head. Like, how the hell did that happen? I said, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm just a big yeah, reader. I know how to read. I know how to assimilate information. I think that's really all there is to it, right? It's sure. just a matter of putting putting information together, putting the pieces together, and then going out and executing on it. So, you know, that journey lasted three and a half years. Um, my commitment was three years for those guys, and 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 at the end of three years, we had we had built a, a great a great product. Um, the only downside was the product was built uh, in HTML for desktop content consumption. And we had kind of, uh, as the concrete started to dry with our technology, the shift to mobile started to take place uh, in, in, in full, right? And we found ourselves with you know, somewhat of anachronistic technology um, that really was, was expensive to maintain uh, and didn't really fit into a, a mobile solution, even with phone gap and even with responsive design. And no matter how we, we tried to slice it into a mobile solution for our customers, which at that point, you know, we had taken the company from me and the two co-founders to 24 employees. We had a big engineering team. We had customers. We were, we were partners with Red Bull, CBS, NBC, uh, NASCAR, World Surf League, nice. Swatch. I mean, we, we, were, we were rolling, right? Um, and our customers didn't want us to go away. However, it was very expensive to maintain that HTML uh, solution up to, we were spending, I think, you know, over almost $250,000 a month just in technology costs. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the idea that, you know, we were going to go back and raise more money to kind of, to kind of throw what we had built away and then go embark on this and then go try to build a mobile solution. It didn't really work. So the sure. best scenario for me was just to disconnect from the company, let the two co-founders go and conceptualize a full on mobile solution. And that's, that's really what they're doing right now. And they're back trying to raise money to get that built. And once they, once they build that, I'll probably reattach to live one uh, in oh, cool. professional capacity. But, but through that journey, uh, obviously, you know, fomented a ton of super high level relationships, you know, with, you know, Tim Armstrong, I mean, everybody at Yahoo, I mean, you know, Facebook, right, Twitter, right. I mean, Twitch. I mean, so for me, even though I left the company in 2015 of 08, I still had people emailing me, hey, I still got, I still got live stream content and I still need solutions. Can you help? Um, you know, because right, nobody right. knows the market better than you, you know, what, so, so it made sense for me to start. Blue Jay uh, strategies just as a, as a mechanism by which I could still attach myself to the tech community and media, be a connector, um, you know, help people solve high and low level problems as far as, you know, building engagement platforms and still, you know, not do it for free. So is Blue, <laughs> is Blue Jay more of a consulting company? It is. It's more of a consulting collective. It's yeah. just kind of me. I've got a partner in San Francisco, uh, Jan D'Alessandro, who is just fantastic. She was she was biz dev at Yahoo. She was a co-founder at Top Spin. Oh, cool. uh, she was an early AOL under Barry Schuler. Uh, mm. She's also a lawyer, which saves us a ton of money. So. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. And she's just she lives in the valley. I mean, she lives in San Francisco, and she's just one of these people that's uber connected, right? So, so it's been a kind of it's been a great um, 
you know, we work kind of independently, but we can tap into each other's resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been good. I mean, it's just been, it's fun. I don't do a ton of work. Uh, I just take on clients that I really feel like there's a tailwind and a low drag coefficient. It doesn't take me a lot to help them out if they right. just need access, you know, or they just need some guidance or they need some intros. That's really kind of what Blue Jay is on about. I see. I see that you, uh, I, have to, I have to ask because I'm a big fish fan. I saw that you worked with fish. What'd you guys do with them? We yeah so we did the uh, we did actually the what was the biggest live stream of that year I think fish on New Year's Eve uh, went on to be the the biggest uh, live stream pay per view I think of all time Wow uh, what year was that uh, That was twenty fifteen or oh nice yeah so nice. it was them at Madison Square Garden where they did the three nights Yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and we did that with Brad Sterling um, Oh I was there I was there uh, actually yeah. I, was at, I was at one of the shows. So Brad Sterling uh, has Nugs.net, mm-hmm. um, uh, who's out in San Francisco, where you're moving to, um, who's a great, you know, great live streaming, was a great live streaming partner. So we used, we did a lot of work with him. We did a lot of work with John Petrocelli at Bulldog Media, who was a former head of uh, digital at AEG. Um, I mean, again, you know, you, you get into it and it's like, it's like being in a band, right? It's not, right. It's not too different. It amazes me what they did with Nugs.net. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean was, Nugs.net started as a place to find fish sets. concerts. Was it Grateful Dead or Fish? Yeah, it was well well the way Brad kind of came into business is that he had the fish archive, right? Right. And it was the Grateful Dead people that take a took a look at that and said, and I might be getting this wrong, and apologies to Brad if I am, but the Grateful Dead people said that like we need somebody to manage our archive. So he ended up getting that whole treasure trove of I forget what the old Grateful Dead's website was. It was somebody's locker uh, was it Dick's Picks? Mm, I don't know. It was some, I think it was like Moe's Locker or something, but he got he got all of that content uh, to manage hmm. and then just started you know, from fish, you started working with guys like Humphreys McGee and, and widespread panic and those types of things. And it right. just steamrolled because I mean, you think the pumpkins are big, right? But you go to like a widespread panic concert and you're like, who are these people? Yeah. That, that's <laughs> I mean, like fish. I mean, I've been a fish fan for years, but you go, you know, I went to see him in, in, uh, in Florida in 99 into 2000, there's 85,000 people there. Right. One band. Yeah. No opener, no support bands, nothing. No side no. stages, nothing. It's just No hit fit. songs. No hit songs either. Right? Yeah. It's insane. It, I mean, they're I mean, doing 13 nights at Madison Square Garden now. But it just tells you, right? I mean, it's it almost, you know, the environment that they facilitate is so integral to their value, right? I mean, right. you go there and it's not just... Fish is just fish is just the you know um, the mechanism by which you have the experience, mm-hmm. but it's the experience that has the value. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, you can listen to fish records at home, and it's like, yeah, okay, they're kind of noodling around, and it's not know, the it's, same. I, I mean, I'm like, you know, I love watch the live stream, and I'm like, I'm a you know, I'm a super prog head, you know, I I know a lot about prog music, and I'm going, yeah, the guitar player, you know, he's pretty good, and you know, drummer's great, and bass player's great. It's like. But they're not. I mean, it's not mob issue, right? I mean, no. they're not. They're not right. I mean, they're not. They're not doing you know three bars of eleven into a bar of nine and a five four. I mean, you know, they're playing you know just kind of groove stuff. Right. Obviously articulated really well, but there's so much honesty behind it, and mm-hmm. they're so into their trip that it's like it just translates. Yeah, and the experience I mean, live is just 
it's a it's it's an experience it's audio it's visual you know yeah. it's, it's it's camaraderie and yeah. it's the whole the whole thing so how do you it's like I, it's like it's like it's like uh it's like juggaloos without the trailer <laughs> trailer <park. laughs> i like it <laughs> So how do you suggest that people, uh, so musicians, bands, how, how would you suggest that they embrace the technology if they don't have, you know, if they don't have the money to go out and, you know, hire a dev team or they don't have, you know, they don't have all these things. They just have what's, what's available to them. They have Facebook, they have Instagram, they have Twitter, all of that stuff. How do you, what do you think is the best way coming from a media perspective and a consumption perspective to really use those things effectively versus just like, oh, we're just going to tweet once in a while i mean i and this is going to sound very non-tech um but i think the best way to utilize that stuff is to write a great fucking song <laughs> i love that <laughs> i think you know all right thanks we'll uh we'll talk to you later Jimmy. that's good talk. <laughs> i mean spend less time figuring out how to use that stuff and more time practicing right right i mean if you're if you're spending 40 percent of your time learning how to navigate the waters of social media that's 40% of your time that you could be sent, you know, trying to write the song of your life. I mean, right. we did this thing and uh, I did uh, San Francisco music and tech summit a couple of years ago with Brian Zisk and those guys, super, super cool, great summit. And I was on a panel with Haney Natta and some, just some great guys, golden voice. And this one kid was, was just going on and on. Like how exactly that question, like how important is it that I have, uh, you know, my guest list and VIP and, and these other guys who don't play in bands were just talking endlessly about you know, placating your fans and giving them more and blah, 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 and making sure you have mailing lists. So you're mailing your super fans who are influencers when you come to Oklahoma City and all sort of bullshit. And I, and I just and they finally came to me because I was the last guy on the panel. And he goes, what do you think? And I said, you know what? If you write a great fucking song, you don't have to talk to anybody. Right, right. <laughs> And it's it's sort of like it's uh, who's uh, Gary Vaynerchuk? You know Gary V. Oh yeah, it's just on a, I just spoke at uh, Dublin Tech Summit with him. Nice, nice. Yeah. So and he talks about he is amazing. Yeah, he's a he's a Jersey guy. So I actually spoke uh, at a at a music and tech conference here with him uh, yep. last year, mm -hmm. and so and he, you know he he talks about social media as being it's like a telephone. It's yep. just a tool. That's right. It's just something to use. Now you have the internet before you had a telephone and you had, you know, you had regular mail. Now you have email. So it's, it doesn't change great, anything. No. You still have to be good. It's a great thing to let people know when you've done something great, but we don't need to know that you might be doing something great. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Right. I may be doing something great. Stand right? by. So that's what it's gotten to, right? It's become like this whole, like, you know, uh, Billy used to call it, look at me, don't look at me, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like building, a, you can't build a reputation on things that you're going to do. I mean, well, I mean, apparently you can, but, but, you know, I'm just not good at it. And I don't I think musicians are good at it, but obviously, you know, people like, well, we know who the social media stars are out there. I mean, they've obviously, you know, created something out of nothing or something out of, you know, something that I don't understand what, 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 what it is, but it's just the world we live in. I mean, again, you know, getting back to arts and the importance of education in a world where, you know, even musicians can be um, blindsided by this, uh, you know, uh, perceived value of narcissism and perceived value of quantification by other people's standards. 
it just tells you how important it is to have arts in the schools, right? Especially here in Chicago, where they're removing arts programs from schools. Because again, going back to my experience with my instrument, you know, arts, uh, a relationship with an instrument or, or, or a journey through the arts is oftentimes a person's first and only experience with giving, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and being able to give something in order to give back. So when you remove that stuff from kids, if they're not playing in sports, you know, what type of spiritual upward mobility do they have, right? And then when they get to be young adults and they try to, you know, forge ahead uh, with a life that has meaning for them, it gets very confusing as to what has real value, what has intrinsic value or perceived value, and what has, you know, marketable value or value you can actually live your life by. Right. Right. I was I just had a conversation with my wife about this yesterday about Instagram and how 11, 12, 13 year old girls put a picture up on Instagram. And if it doesn't get enough likes, not only do they take it down, but then when they go to school the next day, they get ridiculed and yeah. made fun of because they didn't get enough likes on their Instagram. And I said, look, every, you know, as kids, everybody gets ridiculed once in a while. But now it's like now it's in a public forum. It's yeah. in real time. And when you go home, you're not, it's not like when you get home from school, you're immune to it anymore because now you can go online and still get made fun of and still get, you know, and, and I, this is a loose time, but just saying how, you know, finding, finding value in things other than likes on Instagram and, and things like that. It's like, it's, it's tough, man. I wouldn't want to be a teenager now. No, it's extremely difficult. And I've got, and I'm the you know father of a 14 year old girl. And, and luckily for, for me, you know, Audrey was raised uh, in the Montessori system and doesn't, she has a phone, but she doesn't have an Instagram account and she doesn't have a group of friends that really identify with that as a value base. So, but I, but I, but I know I have tons of friends who have kids who are just totally, you know, invested in that uh, as a, as a mechanism of, you know, quantifying life value. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, you know, 13, 14 year old girls shouldn't be worried about that stuff. They should be, you know, having fun, man, and being a kid. And really, right. you know, right. that time is so precious. I read something, I think, in Harper's or, uh, or the New Yorker where they had done a, a breakdown of social media amongst uh, elementary and high school kids in New York. And they determined that every kid in New York was connected somehow. Really? No matter, no matter where they went to school. That's insanity. Right? That so it's every, like you can't escape from it. No, I mean, how do you escape from that's like that's like Kurt Russell, man, escape from New York, right? It's like, <laughs> like the, 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 the adolescent version of escape from New York. Yeah. You know, minus the patch, the eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a Kurt Russell reference on the podcast, and I'm so glad that you did that. Oh, yeah. Well, if the, I'll link up to that, too, because pe- some people are probably listening like, I don't know what he's talking I, but I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's it's I it's I think it's good if it's used for good if and and but I think unfortunately a lot of things you know it's funny even even things that I post on 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 Instagram about music or business or anything like that you get eighteen you know fake comments that are like do you want more followers and all that? so it's like I know, right and it's like it's so it's not about I want more leaders yeah. Yeah, I want more interaction. I'd rather have a hundred people that are very active on my Instagram talking to me and engaging than fifty thousand that you know when I post something I get a hundred and fifty messages that half of them are spam, the other are you know in a different language that don't make any sense or you know or or just 
stupid comments or automated or you know well and also it's it's and i've got i got into a conversation with somebody from like union square ventures or one of fred wilson's uh people uh at south by a couple of years ago about twitter and they were just we were just talking about it as a as a as a as a mechanism for information right and 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 really just as an information tool um but i was saying that it just it creates this dualistic life right where we're like the person I am on Twitter, that's not me. I mean, if I say something on Twitter, I've got to play the part. I'm, it's like it's like the soap opera, right? When the soap right. opera comes out and they're like, the part of Luke will be played by so and so today, right? <laughs> it's not the regular guy, but it's like some other you know lackey that they got schlepping in there. But right. <clears throat> but it's like Twitter, right? It's like the part of Jimmy Chamberlain will be played by the guy who plays Jimmy Chamberlain on Twitter, right? Because right. Jimmy Chamberlain on Twitter isn't going to say what Jimmy Chamberlain says to you if we're talking, you know, in a movie or in a library somewhere. I'm going right. to filter it through my Twitter persona, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to offend anybody. I'm not going to say anything, you know, bad. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, even though, you know, that's not how people are. It's like Twitter has become the pro tools of human emotion, right? It's become the quantization, quantization of human emotion wow but that's not really how people are wow that's a uh, that's a great comparison yeah I, I mean, and i and i agree with you yeah yeah nobody's gonna be like oh you know like here's this thing that i screwed up or you know here's how here's how much like my i had a shitty day today or like yeah, i like, got i got an argument you, with my wife or something you know like, yeah, of course i took a shower today and of course i looked as great as i possibly can of right? course it's i have like, pants on right now <laughs> yeah, at this interview right, right, exactly right <laughs> it's it's like come on man it's just a bunch it's just a bunch of bs smoke and mirrors man yeah it is yeah. it's just you know people playing the part of themselves on some phony baloney thing and and it's great for like look if it's if it helps with you know exposing government or exposing those inconsistencies and we've got first person boots on the ground video analysis of events that are taking place that actually you know uh create accountability um you know that's that's great but Mm -hmm. um but as far as it you know using it to become a personality map or a map of, you know, my, uh, you know, mystical integrity. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Right, right. No, I, I think that, like I said, there's, you can do a lot of good with it and a lot of bad. There's a, there's a guitar player that I used to play with all the time. And he would always say, oh, yeah, we're friends. Like, we'll I'll bring up some. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a bu- <laughs> he's a buddy of mine. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, how do you know him? He's like, well... Oh, I mean, yeah. we're I mean, we're friends on Facebook. So yeah, I'm Frank like, Zappa. he's a I'm like, friend of mine. <laughs> you've never even talked to him. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, right? okay, you're friends with him on Facebook. All right, that's yeah. No, that's I mean, I I don't Facebook. I've got an account, but I don't. I never I, I never look. I only use it to access stuff. But um, right, <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. I just can't get into it, man. I just maybe I'm too old. Just like documenting my life or showing people, like you know, my aunt Barbara's pizza. <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> It's, I mean, I even have a, even doing after doing interviews. So I'll sit down, obviously, and talk to someone for an hour, hour and a half. So if that person's name come, comes up in conversation, I even have a weird way. I'm like, I don't know how to say I'm like, oh, yeah, I had them on my podcast. I'm not gonna be like, oh, that's my friend, you know, or and I've developed relationships with people after having them on here. But I'd never be like, oh, yeah, me and Jimmy Chamberlain go way back. I would say I had him on my podcast. You know, yeah. it's like. It's well, just you know, a, it's a weird I th- thing. I think again, you know, it's people will people will gravitate to the things that you know provide them equity, right? And right. If it's that social cachet, or 
you know, some type of, you know, you look at somebody with a little bit higher regard because they know, you know, I don't even know who, you know, seal or somebody else, you know, stinger, you know, I, it's like, there's, it always kills me. Like when you find out, like you see a guy's bio and it says he played with a bunch of people, but then you find out that he didn't really play with them. They just played the same festival. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Shared the stage with. Yeah. Right. That's the key. Shared the stage with. I'm like. I've shared stages with Robbie Robertson and Sting. And, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I got on the, they left the stage and then I got yeah. on the stage. Well, how come you suck? <laughs> They don't have good taste in drummers if they picked you. All right. So, uh, but Jimmy, I want to, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. I could talk to you all day. So, uh, yeah, sure. but I want to be cognizant of your time. And I, first of all, I want to thank you for one, for the great music that you put out into this world over these years. Thank Two, for, for, for taking the time to chat with me now. And three, for really sort of pulling back the, the, the curtain a little bit and, and letting us remember what, what things are important, what things are not important, where we should be getting value from things, and ultimately just to be, to be self-aware and to be true to yourself. So I appreciate you for spreading that message to the listeners. And, uh, and again, just for being part of this podcast, man, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, really, really cool and an honor to be here. And thanks for including me and uh, amongst the great, uh, obviously, drummers that you've interviewed and really um it's a great uh it's a great privilege i don't take it lightly i mean i think i think for us right who have had a journey uh that's that's been um you know uh, great and and uh representative of, of life and music you know that's what it's about right it's about using that wisdom to give back and save people time i mean when even when i do like master classes like i can show people how i did stuff but really what i'm there to do is just save people time right i want to just give you the lessons that i've learned so you you know may or may not make the same mistakes that i have or at least just start to thinking about things in a little bit of different way so sure, sure. that for me is really how i define my role these days um just in like i'm here to give back right well we appreciate it. I know that I do, and I know that the listeners do. So, absolutely. All right, man. It was great having you. Thank you again, and uh, hopefully we can we can hang in person since we're we are now best friends. And uh, <laughs> I know, right? But uh, no, seriously though, I I do I do appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. You got it, man. All Take right, care. Thanks. So there you have it, the one and only Jimmy Chamberlain. For notes and links to everything that we talk about, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 248. Also, if you want to follow me on social media, you can check me out. I'm at the Nick Ruffini, T-H-E-N-I-C-K-R-U-F-F-I-N-I. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, all that fun stuff. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be talking to you soon. Peace.